from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. In his first memoir, novelist Brian Morton chronicles the story of his mother as she suffers from the effects of a stroke and then dementia. The book, Tasha, a son's memoir, is an excellent look into the lives of not only one family, but I think many others, who have gone through similar experiences with their relatives. From when he resorts to hiding a recording device in his mother's cluttered house and finds out that her caretaker has verbally abused her, to when Tasha screams that she's being kidnapped at a crowded restaurant when Brian attempts to take her to his house to care for her, to her insistence that anyone who enjoys angel food cake is a complete idiot, the story of Brian Paints is both heartbreaking but also funny. We'll talk to Brian this week. It's Wednesday, May 25th. And this is News Nerds. Novelist Brian Morton's sixth book, Tasha, A Son's Memoir, is the story of his mother, Tasha Morton, as her health deteriorates and her life becomes closer to Brian's. It's Morton's first memoir. His past books include Florence Gordon and Starting Out in the Evening, which was adapted into a film in 2007. Brian's received the Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Court Jewish Book Award for Fiction, and the Guggenheim Foundation Award. He has also been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. In his latest book, he chronicles his struggle to find care for his mother after she is stuck in a flooded car, which leads to a stroke and then later her dementia, her stubborn but funny personality, and his effort to understand her in her last months. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ezra. I, as I was just telling you, I really enjoyed your book. It's, it's, a, it's very um, kind of encapsulates what I think many others, uh, other people have experienced as, the, uh, as your mother's generation becomes older. Um, and your mother had a very vibrant personality. I would like you to share kind of what that was like for you and what, what her personality was like. Yes, uh, thank you for asking that. She was in some ways a kind of larger than life personality. She, uh, she was a fighter, uh, first and foremost. She uh, didn't particularly feel satisfied in her life when she was a kid. So she left home at the age of 16 and uh, commenced to live an independent life in, in Greenwich Village in New York. Uh, when I brought this up to her very late in her life, I was talking about her independence of mind and I said something about how remarkable it was that she left home when she was 16 and she replied, I should have left when I was six. She started dating my father then when he was a little hesitant about getting married. She went to live in a kibbutz in Israel, the newly formed state of Israel for about six months. And uh, she was still in her 20s then. Uh, she later became a, uh, a teacher uh, at a time in the 60s when for a lot of people, teaching was almost like being in the Peace Corps or something. It was, a, it was more than a job. It was a, it was a devotion. It was a vocation, let's say. And uh, she, she had a classroom that I describe in the book as the most stimulating educational environment I've ever been in. She, it was uh, something called the open classroom. It was part of a sort of movement in the 60s, which was based on the idea that 
kids have a natural love of learning and that the role of the teacher isn't to fill them up with knowledge, but rather to help stimulate their love of learning and uh, encourage it and in other ways kind of get out of the way. So when you'd visit my mother's classroom, you'd see 30 kids, half of them doing individual projects. These were six-year-olds and half of them working in little groups. And my mother would be moving from group to group, helping one kid with his math, helping another with her reading, stopping with another group to joke around. Um, she was, uh, she had sort of a childlike sense of fun that she never lost. She was also a very difficult person. As I, as I say in the book, she couldn't really imagine a situation that wouldn't be enhanced by her presence. I, I used to think that if, if my mother had been a director, she would have remade Casablanca so that when Humphrey Bogart says to Ingrid Bergman, we'll always have Paris, they would have spent a minute fondly remembering the evenings they spent there with his mom. Um, you know, she, she believed that she should be everywhere. And she was, I, as I think I said, really independent-minded, which in many ways was great. At the end of her life, when she began to succumb to dementia, it made things very, very difficult. It made it very difficult for us, by which I mean my sister and my wife and I, and my sister's husband, to, uh, to get her to accept any kind of care. She, she would keep resolutely insisting that she didn't need any help, even when it was totally obvious that she did need help. Your mother's tendency to become involved in everything, as you were saying, I, I was wondering if it was because of her experience as a teacher who kind of like looked in on the, the relationship that the kids were having in school and how they were learning do you think that she brought that home and kind of applied that to your family's life and everybody else's? That's, that's a interesting speculation and a very generous one on your part. I, my, mine is more, my, my uh, explanation is more based on pop psychology. Her father was, uh, he was sort of an itinerant director and actor and he kept leaving uh, the family for months at a time. When he was around, he would be very charismatic, very charming, but then he would always leave. I had the feeling that my mother's early experience was one of being, or one of feeling perpetually abandoned by her father. And my pop psychology explanation for the way she was with us was she didn't want to let anybody get away even for a moment. And she didn't want to let anything get away. She was a terrible hoarder. And uh, uh, I would try to come over and help her clean up. And you'd find stacks of newspapers that she wouldn't let me throw out. And I'd pull out one newspaper from like 20 years earlier. You know, it might be the year 2000. And, uh, and I pick up a newspaper paper from 1980 and I go, can I throw this out? And she'd be, no, I might need it someday. Um, so who knows why people are the way they are? Maybe, maybe your explanation is correct and mine isn't, but, but uh, she, was, uh, 
she was intense in that way. But I want to ask you a question, Ezra. Here, you've very generously asked me to appear on your podcast, and I'm very thankful. But I'm also wondering, I've written a book about the efforts of a guy in his 60s to take care of a mother in her 80s. And she's finally, I think, 90 when, when, uh, when, when, she, when she died. And, and I'm, uh, I'm very flattered by your interest, but I wonder in, in, what, in what way the book interested you, in, in what way you connected with it. Well, it was first introduced to me um, from a review by Maureen Corrigan, who is uh, a fresh air contributor. When I heard that it was your mother's personality and the things that you went through with with her, and um, I decided that I needed to talk to you because, and also as I read more this week when I was reading your book, I just felt as if this was just such a such a amazing uh, accomplishment, but something that many people grow, go through in their own way. As their relatives grow older, it seems like everybody has some version of what what you describe, even if it it is different in some ways. Um, so that's how I uh, kind of came upon this book. And also, I feel like as I read more, I feel like I relate to <laughs> some of the things that she did. Like, this may uh, be strange, but I uh, do have newspapers from many different years ago. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, some a, a man from a town nearby generously donated some newspapers from all the way from 1918 to the 60s <laughs> that I have in the, and also some like some life magazines and that. And I, you know, I always say when my parents tell me the same thing that you told Tasha, I might need that too. And <laughs> you might need I relate that to that aspect <laughs> of the memoir. <laughs> when you want to, Read a little bit more about World War One as it happened. You, you might need that piece from 1918. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. I, I, that I makes read total that sense. Tasha had like a, a New Yorker from from 20 years ago, and and you know that seems like something that I would do too. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But when when you went through these, I, I love it. I. You know, I've got these long descriptions of her house and, and you know, what it was like to, 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 to be a hoarder. And I love the idea of somebody reading the book and going, hmm, I wish I had those newspapers. I wish I had that New Yorker. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> as you went through these experiences with her, as you tried to go through her house and, and basically make a better life for her, uh, she always had witty responses to, to tell you. And she always had yeah some something pretty witty or or something that made you laugh uh where do you think she got her sense of humor because um as you said she was raised where you could easily despair that your father was always uh always gone and you write that you know her older brother who who had a musical mind was always getting uh the most attention because you know they they thought that 
she uh he was going places she was seemed to be always uh second uh, where do you think she found the sense of humor in all of that that's such a good question uh she might have gotten it from her father who who uh who was a, a very playful man uh or uh i don't know maybe it's maybe it's sort of inborn in some people like left-handedness or right-handedness uh it's it's always such an interesting and puzzling question of where where do people get their traits um i have two kids and uh my wife and i can sometimes uh you know uh, amuse ourselves with conversations about well Gabriel got this trait from you and Emmett got that trait from me. But what actually strikes us both, I think, overwhelmingly is the way people are born with personalities somehow. They are who they are almost from the beginning or from the beginning. And uh, that, that uh, sense of humor, that, that playfulness might have been just inborn in her. So your mother and your father, uh, they seem to have different personalities, speaking of personalities. Uh, at the same time, she seemed to kind of fall into a state of sadness when he died. But uh, it seemed like their relationship, although it had some struggles, as you say in the book, uh, made her basically, uh, as I think she writes in her one of her journal entries, it's kind of stabilized her. How did their relationship function? Um, that's a really good question. I think, uh, well, the, they had a lot of difficulties. They had a lot of troubles, but I think they genuinely loved each other all the way through. Uh, she once said to me that I think when he was still alive, in 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 in, in one one of the last uh, years before he died, I, I remember her saying something like, "When she would sometimes meet him for dinner or whatever, and and see him on the street, she would she would get this this nice uh, this nice sort of lift in her heart when she when she when she saw him." So. I think they sustained each other by being in love and being interested in each other. Uh, I also think there was a sense in which his mere presence in her life served to contain her so that some of her, uh, let's say, some of her less... uh, healthy habits didn't spill out too much. Specifically, when he was alive, there was always sort of one or two rooms in the house that were completely overrun with junk, maybe maybe the den and the garage. And it was only after he died that the entire house became terrifyingly filled with, with junk. That's a very 
specific, particular, external example, but I think something similar might be the case with her, might have been the case with her internal life, so that once he was gone, a certain sense of sadness or depressiveness that was always there to some extent uh, kind of had more of an outlet and, and, and flooded her. Can you tell me more about the house that they lived in and how she found it and um, their reactions each individually? Uh, yeah. They had lived in a nice little split level. And most people, I'd say, when their kids leave home, go to college, then graduate, get jobs of their own, have apartments of their own, most people either stay where they are or else move to some place smaller. My parents curiously moved to someplace bigger. My mother fell in love with this house that was built in 1765 or something like that. This enormous, really old and pretty much falling apart place. And they moved into it. My father reluctantly, but my mother was, was like in love with the place. I think it made them happy for a few years, both of them really. It was a very unusual house. And I think they both thought there was something cool about living in a house with that much history. Um, but again, when he, when he died, that house be, quickly became unmanageable. And it, the, one part of it or another was always falling apart or falling down. Uh, but it gave them a nice three years. Yeah. Why did, your, why did your father originally hate the house and why didn't he want to move in? I'm not sure he hated it, but for my mother, it was, gosh, how, how old would she have been? She, she, I guess she would have been about 55. I, I think she's, when she found the house, it was as if she regarded it as her last adventure. She wanted to sort of do something cool and moving into this crazy old place seemed really attractive to her. My father, I think, recognized the impracticality of it, that it would be very hard to do the maintenance. Neither of them were handy. Neither of them had any interest in fixing up a place. So he was, he was quite reluctant. But uh, the, the force, the fervor of her desire for the place was so, uh, so keen that he went along with it. Uh, and then he died within a few years. She was alone in the house for all those years and she developed a, a love-hate relationship with the place. It was, it was almost like her relationship with her house was, was, was one of the most intense relationships she had. Uh, she kept imagining that she was going to clean it up and she kept filling it up with more and more newspapers from 1918 uh, and um, it it was uh, <laughs> uh, as I say, it was a very intense relationship. Uh, and it was very hard to get her out of there when 
the time came that she couldn't really take care of herself anymore. Well, can you read a passage from your book? I'd, I'd be happy to. When it was finally cleaned and sold, I took one last visit to make sure we hadn't left anything behind. It was unrecognizable as the place my mother had lived in and be soiled for the past 30 years. Instead, it resembled the place it had been when they moved there. I'd forgotten what it looked like without the detritus of her despair filling every room. So on that last day, the house was like a time machine. I remembered how happy and hopeful she was when they moved there. She kept talking about gracious living. My father thought taking on the responsibility of an old house at their age was a bad idea, but she'd loved the place so much that he'd gone along, grudgingly at first, but then enthusiastically. And for a few years, living there had brought both of them pleasure. I walked from one room to the other, calling out, Mom, Dad, and saying, I love you, and I'm sorry. I didn't quite know what I was sorry for. I was sorry they were gone. I was sorry their world was gone. Most of the people they'd cared about, many of the places that had been their landmarks. And I was sorry you can't stop time because I knew that these few minutes of walking through the house would soon be over and that I'd never set foot there again. And that even though I was walking through a house, they'd departed. When I look back on this afternoon, it would seem in memory like the last afternoon I'd spent with them. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, how did you cope with your father's death? Um, well, it was a deep shock. He, uh, he died very suddenly. He died in his sleep one night and he hadn't been ill. And uh, that's kind of a double-edged sword if a parent dies very suddenly when they're still in good health. Because on the one hand, you could say it's better over the long run because you get to remember them as they were in their prime with all their vitality. Your memories of them when they were at their best aren't sort of eclipsed by the memory of later years when, when they were in decline. But on the other hand, the shock of having a parent die so suddenly was enormous. For maybe a year afterward, I kept having these dreams in which he had already died, but in the sort of universe of my dream life, a person died twice so that he had already died but was sitting around the house looking really sort of grayed out and, and listless and we were waiting for his second death. And I just found those dreams weird, but I kept having them over and over and over again and I didn't know why. And it was only when I stopped having those dreams in which we were waiting for a second death that I began to think that what those dreams meant was that Although he had died, I hadn't fully accepted it in the deepest part of myself or in my unconscious. And 
that second death that was coming was going to be the moment when I finally did accept it in the deepest part of myself. And uh, that took about a year. In order to honor him and to try to keep him alive in my memory a bit, I started uh, keeping a notebook in which I would write down memories of him or things he said. And that became the seed of the first novel that I published, a novel with the unfortunate title, The Dylanist. Uh, both my parents are, are in that novel in fictionalized form. This is not the first time, as you've said, that you've written about your mother. Um, and this, this new memoir you write is kind of a, another attempt at that um, because you think that you didn't treat her fairly in that, in that first novel, but because she's not, uh, not with you anymore, is it hard knowing that she'll never be able to read this attempt uh, with the first one? She, you gave her a, a, a copy and she called you the next day and, and told you, Hey, uh, it's, it's your former mother because she had been so insulted by, by that. Yes. Um, what do you think she would think about this? I think, um, I think there are some things in this new book that she wouldn't be pleased by. It's part of it is an unvarnished account of how difficult things became as, as her health declined. And that picture is one that she wouldn't find flattering. But I think, I'm sure she would be happy that I wrote a book about her, that I, that I spent this time thinking about her and trying to honor her. And I think, or I hope that she would see that I tried to write this book in part as a kind of act of repair, uh, trying to paint a more complete picture of her than I had in that novel and trying to trying to see the different sides of her better and and uh, trying to take her and her aspirations seriously. So I think she would like that. I hope. <laughs> Maybe she'd be offended all over again. I'm not sure. Well, one thing that struck me from the book is probably something that I kind of already knew, but didn't want to think about as as much just because it's not a, a very pleasant topic. It's just that the the care system for the elderly has especially um, uh, especially in areas that that don't have as many resources has uh not been the, the most pleasant thing it's you had a hard experience finding care for your mother and even though you you had been through um you know finding uh experts in the medical field this seemed to be the hardest can you tell me about that experience yes as I, as I say in the book, we were astonished by how few resources there are for adults who are, for people who are trying to take care of elderly parents. There's no government database uh, 
it's it's very hard to find out what what you can get from Medicare, whether uh, whether the benefits that you might be able to get from Medicare or Medicaid are the same in every state or different in different states. This was an issue for us because my sister lived in New Jersey and I lived in New York. Um, it's uh, it's just super difficult to find resources. And then when you find them, the resources are generally pretty bad. Uh, I I'm far from a social scientist, so what I'm going to say is not based on any deep study of the question, but the United States obviously lags behind the European, Western European democracies in Canada and Japan, other countries in terms of the social services it provides in general. I feel like there were a few peak moments in the 20th century when the United States did a little bit of catching up in various ways with things like social security, unemployment insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and so on. But I think that the problem of elder care is rather new in that people are living much longer than they did. And also, rates of Alzheimer's disease and dementia have been climbing for reasons that are not fully understood. And I think we need a, uh, a kind of deep going social reform that would be the equal of those other great social reforms to really do something about the problem of elder care in America. But I don't see such reforms being on the horizon. And the way it is now, it's like this general problem that millions of people are encountering as their parents age, but every family is trying to figure out how to take care of it on their own. Uh, as I write in the book, sometimes it seems like the unofficial motto of this country is you're on your own. Yeah. Um, I really thought this was a funny, uh, a funny moment in the book. Uh, your mother's last words. I mean, they're always, they're sometimes very strange, but her last words uh, as she was in the, uh, the, the free spirit wing of the care um, center that she was at eventually, you, you spend your last chapters kind of interpreting that those last words um, in, your, in, in your own mind, what do you think they meant? When my mother was dying, she was in a state kind of like a coma for several days and she wasn't responsive. We didn't know if she understood that we were in the room. When I say we, I'm referring to uh, my sister and my wife and I and sometimes some of her grandchildren or son of her son-in-law and so on. But there was, there was one evening when my sister and I were there and an aide came in to change my mother's diapers and my, my sister and I left the room and we heard my mother cursing at the aide. And this actually uh, made us happy 
because we thought it meant that she had come back to consciousness. When we came back into the room and the aide left, her eyes were still closed, but thinking that she was close to consciousness again, uh, my sister said, I love you. And my mother responded with an obscenity and then said, go to hell. And then I tried, I said, I love you, mom. And she said, well, I hate you. And she lived several more days and those were the last words that anyone heard her speak. To this day, well, I'll never know whether she understood that she was talking to me or whether she thought she was still talking to an aide or someone else from her life. I mean, she was really, you know, far away in, in a state that one of the nurses referred to as active dying. Uh, but when I wrote about it in the book, I, as I was writing, I started to think that I hoped that she knew who she was talking to. I hoped that she knew she was talking to me. There were many ways in which I had disappointed her, I think, uh, starting with the novel that I, that I wrote years ago that, that didn't, didn't uh, please her. And uh, I didn't want her to be cursing out, to be mistakenly cursing out some aid. I wanted her to know who she was cursing in that last, in that last minute. Uh, and, uh, and I just thought it was such a tremendous irony in that she was someone who conceived of herself as living entirely for her children. Someone who believed that she would do anything for her children. And I just love the fact that her last words to her children were go to hell and I hate you. Um, I haven't read Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov in many years, but I remember that near the beginning of the book, one of the brothers is a priest who has a, uh, a sort of teacher, an elderly priest who everyone reveres as a saint. There's like nothing wrong with this guy. He's perfect. And when the elder dies, he, uh, his corpse is kept there for a few days, I guess during wake or something and his corpse began, begins to stink and it's not like other corpses have, have have smelled it it's some stink that nobody has ever smelled before in their lives the most horrible smell in the world and everybody's trying to figure out what does this mean that father zosima the best man any of us have has, has ever known is giving off this this odor in death it uh it's it's like inexplicable to everyone in the uh, in the novel, and my mother's cursing us out on her deathbed. Uh, well, in writing in writing about that, I, I felt like I was giving a tiny secret tip of the hat to Dostoevsky. Well, Brian, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me, and uh, I just loved your book. And I I seemed as I told you I. I, th I feel like I've known your mother for years now, and I, I am very sorry for your loss of, of Tasha. Thank you, Ezra. And thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your questions, which were great and got me thinking about things that I've never really thought about before. I, I'm really so glad you asked me. 
that's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.